0: Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, looking at the parable that begins in verse 21. Let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, we thank you for just the opportunity to, to come together and, and do what your people have always done, which is come together to, to hear from you, from your word, to, to circle together as a people around your word knowing that the primary way that you communicate to us is from the Bible and Lord we need that communication because in our fallenness we justify so much craziness we we, we need clarity from your word but we know that that is more than the science of interpreting words and ideas but there's a a spiritual component to that of Your Spirit coming and giving us eyes to see the truth of Your Word. Helping us understand how we are to apply it. Giving us faith where we lack. Convicting us where we need conviction, but also encouraging us where we need encouragement. So Lord, we invite Your Spirit to come. Holy Spirit, fill this room and do the work that only You can do. We need You to come now. Lord, I ask that as we delve into this parable, maybe the most terrifying of all the parables. I pray, Father, that we would uh, see it as glorious, understand it, feel the weight of it, and walk out of this room transformed to walk more faithful, more in line with Your kingdom, more in line with Your Word that leads to health and happiness and hope. May that be true of us. May we be a forgiving people. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. How should you feel if you have accomplished the most significant thing that you can accomplish in your industry? And also, what should your spirits be on the day your beloved daughter gets married? And and what if those two things were intertwined in some way? Like, what if both of those came together in a beautiful moment? How should you feel? If you were the president of the United States and then you got to walk your daughter down the aisle at the White House. What a moment for President Nixon. In 1971, June 21st, his daughter Teresa married Edward Cox in this beautiful outdoor ceremony in the Rose Garden at the White House. I looked at the pictures this week and it was beautiful. Lovely ceremony. The flowers looked amazing. The couple was just cute and charming. Those pictures do what good wedding pictures do, right? They just, they just you know, give you that warm feeling of, of young love. And it was beautiful. And it was a beautiful day. It was a wonderful moment. Can you imagine what a glorious moment that must have been? How would you feel if you were the President of the United States getting to walk your daughter down the aisle at the White House? President Nixon was a famously bitter person. And people reported that at the reception, he was just venting and spewing bitterness. He was venting about his political enemies. He was spewing about editors who had done him wrong. He was harshly critical of of this whole list of people. There were these forces in society that that he was just vomiting about. And and he had, uh, if you know anything about... President Nixon, he kept these lists of people and how they had wronged him so that he could remember to impose revenge upon them. Listen, I wasn't alive in 1971. I'm certainly no expert on, on President Nixon, and I don't care to kind of get in all the ins and outs of the perspective of it. And just to give a little balance of my illustration, I looked at pictures, and, and he looked very happy during the, the, the ceremony. Okay? There were, he had a genuine, uh, joyous smile on his face. However, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be spewing bitter anger at my daughter's wedding. Isn't that a sad report? Like, isn't that sad of him that here he was at the pinnacle of politics. And he had this beautiful moment of his daughter's wedding in the rose garden of the, of the White House. But when friends cornered him at the reception, what came out of him were these bitter rants. On a day like that, he, he shouldn't be stuck replaying those wrongs. He, he should have been enjoying the blessings of this life and getting to dance with his daughter on her wedding day. How do you get unstuck from the trap of bitterness? He clearly was stuck in a trap, wasn't he? How do you get unstuck? How do you move forward from settled anger? Today, we're continuing this series that I've titled Battling Bitterness. And bitterness begins with an embittering experience. And listen, the Bible is abundantly clear that you are going to have embittering experiences. If you've lived longer than like 24 months, you know that's true, right? You've had embittering experiences. And I'm here to tell you, you're actually going to have more. There's more that awaits. The Bible is abundantly clear on that, that this world has fallen, this world is broken, this world is not fair. There are wrong things that are going to happen to you. You are going to have embittering experiences due to the brokenness of this world and that's where bitterness comes from but as we've talked about what we want in this series and our prayer is is to give you four tools to battle bitterness when it shows up in your heart last week we looked at lament and and lament is this biblical pattern that you see over and over again especially in the Psalms where where someone lays this hurt before the Lord in this uh, honest authentic maybe anguished way my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, the, that the, the person lays that before the Lord, just lays their hurts, lays their anxieties upon Him. That's the first of two steps to lament. But then there's a moment. There's a moment before they, they hang up that prayer, if you will, this yet God moment where there's a turn From the complaints and from the grumbling over the bitterness of the world to the person and the promises of God. There's a moment where they say, yet God, you are dot, dot, dot. And you promise dot, dot, dot. And that becomes the hope. That becomes how the psalmist is able to move forward. That is the pattern of lament that we looked at last week. When you have that moment, you lay it out before the Lord. But before you hang up, have that yet God turn to Him. Today, we're going to look at forgiveness. Next week, we're going to look at putting away or putting off. And then the fourth week, we're going to look at trust. Now, this, this battle over bitterness is important because bitterness is one of those quiet killers, right? Like, listen, bitterness is not going to get the headlines, okay? It's not one of those scandalous sins, you know, that, that we read about in the newspapers. But, but bitterness is one of those quiet killers. It's one of those polite sins, However, it's poison all the same. Bitterness will kill your soul. In fact, it's been said that bitterness is drinking poison, hoping that it will kill your enemy. I think that's a great definition of bitterness. But you might be wondering, well, how do I know that I'm bitter? That's really why I shared the, the, the Nixon illustration with you. And I, and I wanted to emphasize the word should in there. Because there's moments where you should be responding a certain way, And if you're not, it becomes this check engine light that something is wrong in your soul. And that was true of Nixon on that day. He should have been cheerful. He should have been happy. This should have been a high moment for him. But it became this check engine light that something was wrong in his soul. Do you have moments like that? Do you have moments where you should be cheerful, but in reality you're replaying all these wrongs in your head? Do you have moments where you should be focused on your work, but instead you're relitigating all those past wrongs? If that's true of you, that's how you know. That's how you know that something is going on in your soul that you need to push into. I promise we're going to get to our text in this second tool in a second. But let me say a couple of things about bitterness before we dive into Matthew 18. Number one, bitterness, again, is the result of of embittering experiences now, now why I think that is so important is because if you're struggling with bitterness over something I want you to hear me you're not crazy and if you come to me and say listen I'm struggling over this this guy did this she said that I, I th- yeah but his tone was this I'm going to give it to you I'm going to say you're right divorce is not fair the, cancer is not fair you're right Their their tone shouldn't have been that way. You've been wrong. This world is is broken and what you are experiencing is the brokenness of the world. Bitterness comes from embittering experiences. But second, bitterness is defined as settled anger. So it's when we experience the brokenness of the world and we respond in anger, and there's a place for a righteous anger. When someone wrongs you and your instinct is anger, there's a place for that. But what do you do with it? If it just sits, if it just sits like a, a metal drum on your soul, just, just seeping poison into your heart, that's the problem. That bitterness is this settled anger souring your soul. The anger is settled and you're not moving forward from it. And that becomes the solution. You are to move forward from the anger. In that moment, the call is is to move forward from it. And these are the four tools that we have. The, the, The tool that we have today is forgiveness. If that anger is just settled on your soul, leaking poison into it, brother, the call is to forgive, and better yet, to forgive generously. Look at verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Peter ends up looking foolish in this, okay? He, he's the fool in this dynamic here. But before you pile on Peter, understand his position. Peter was convinced of the need for forgiveness as well as the virtue of forgiveness. Let's start there. So in that way, he's very much like you and me, right? Like Peter would not say, you shouldn't forgive somebody. He recognizes, listen, it's good to forgive. And listen, Peter's position is probably 95% of people's position. Like I've never sat down with somebody and they say, you know what? It's not a good thing to forgive somebody. I've never heard that out of someone's mouth, okay? Everyone I've ever talked to about forgiveness say, yeah, you should forgive. It's right to forgive. And so I would argue that Peter's position is actually ours position, and Peter's position, I would say, is a righteous position. You should forgive somebody seven times. Amen, I'm with you. But Jesus says something more profound, doesn't he? Like, he's talking about, first, certainly the frequency of forgiveness, okay? Really, probably what he's getting at here is, is, uh, is 70 times 7, which you get to the number of 490. So he's talking about numbers. He's talking about frequency here. But he's really talking about something more profound, He's talking about generous forgiveness, okay? Let's, let me just be abundantly clear for the math nerds in here. If you got the 490 with the math, you're right. What Jesus is not saying is, okay, you ought to forgive 490 times, but at 491, hold that grudge. He's not saying that. Are, are we clear on that? He's getting to something more profound. He is saying that, listen, you should forgive generously. And listen, I would argue that if you're like counting the number of times, if math is part of your forgiveness equation, you are not forgiving. Are you with me? Jesus is getting to the heart. Jesus always cuts to the heart. He's calling Peter to forgive generously. He's saying, listen, forget the math. Forget the past. Forget the yeah buts of of the levels of the wrongs. Jesus is calling us to forgive and to forgive generously. There shouldn't be any more yeah buts to our forgiveness. Forgive generously. Okay, but, but what is forgiveness? I think the best definition I found is, is canceling debt. Like, like when someone wrongs you, they owe you something. They've taken something from you and they owe you something. They're in your debt. And when you're bitter, when your anger is settled, you're holding on to that debt. In other words, your inner lawyer is just kicking into high gear and you're setting up all these scenarios that if they don't do this, then you're not going to do this. But if they do this, then I'm going to get my pound of flesh here. All that's going on. You're holding on to the debt. So lack of forgiveness is conditional and it's contractual. Forgiveness is wiping the slate clean, wiping the ledger clean. It's just done. You're saying, listen, you don't owe me anything anymore. That's what forgiveness is. But I'm not going to make you raise your hand on this question, but do you find that difficult to do? I do. <laughs> this text and the sermon's for me, okay? I am not a forgiving person, OK? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bitter person. I, I can hold on to grudges and hold on to things. If this is difficult to you, why is this difficult? Well, this is difficult for a few reasons. Number one, this is in line with our, our natural flesh. Because what it means to be a human is, is that you cling to that debt rather than letting it go. We naturally want to make ourselves feel superior or, or to punish someone who's hurt us. That, that's just what it means to be a human. That's part of our, our natural DNA. But for some, we might fear forgiveness. Like, like I've held on to grudges before simply out of fear of not getting hurt again. Like I've taken, you know, that debt and I've used it like bricks, building up a wall to like protect me from someone so they don't hurt me again. Sadly, I think for many, we can thematically live unforgiving lives. Like, like this can just become instinct. It can just become habit. See, you, you can bitterly hold on to layers of wrongs for years of hurt, and maybe not even realize that you're drinking the poison that you're drinking. I, I think President Nixon is probably here. He, this is probably just his pattern to grumble and complain, which is why he was doing it at his daughter's wedding. For some of us, this is just what we do, right? It's a pattern in our lives. So forgiveness can be difficult for all these reasons. But what Jesus is outlining here is a better way. He, he's going to put this in the next verse in the context of the kingdom. Which means that this is how we are to live according to the kingdom. We are to live this better way. And this better way means that it leads to happiness, it leads to health, it leads to hope. If we would follow this path, we are to generously forgive. What does it mean to generously forgive? Well, a few things. I think it means to live according to Jesus' way means that we are quick to forgive. Generous forgiveness is a quick forgiveness. It doesn't hold on to something for years and just kind of eke out, you know, letting it go. It's quick to forgive. Living according to Jesus' way means that, uh, that we are to forgive frequently. Like generous forgiveness, it happens over and over and over and over again. Brent, if you think, okay, I forgave him once and then I'm done, that's not generous forgiveness. You're going to spend the rest of your life forgiving people. We are to forgive over and over again. Living according to Jesus also means radically forgiving. Like generously forgiving does not forgive for one category of sins, but then withholds forgiveness from all these other categories of sins. We are called to forgive generously. But why? This is where he goes next with this parable. We're to forgive generously because you have been forgiven generously. Look at verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Let me just stop here for a quick second. What's going on here is the context of the kingdom. This is kingdom living. This is what it looks like to live according to the ways of Christ. This is how Jesus wants you to live. If you go this way, it leads to a happier, more fulfilled, more beautiful life than if you go another way. The person who is generous with their forgiveness It leads to a happier life versus the one who holds on to the grudges. So lack of forgiveness is the opposite of kingdom living. And further, if you're unforgiving, it's a mark here of worldly living. You see, people who don't forgive, they're not citizens of the kingdom of God. Do you need to let that set for a second? Like That's what he's going to say here. He's going to call you to a better way. He's going to call us to happiness, to fulfillment, to beautiful lives of kingdom living. But if we live another way, He's saying you're part of another kingdom. Look, the gist of the parable is is that God has generously, eternally, and unconditionally forgiven you. That moment when you repented and believed and were converted and born again, that's what happened. He forgave you generously, eternally, and unconditionally. And He did that so that you can now generously, eternally, and unconditionally forgive other people. Verse 24, When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, and all that they had as payment to be made back. 10,000 talents is a ridiculous Incalculable amount of money. Okay, you probably don't know, but a talent is is the highest currency denomination in the Roman Empire at the time. So this is ten thousand talents. You might not know what a talent is, but I'm sure you know what a drachma is, right? That's a joke. A drachma, six thousand drachmas here is is the equivalent of one talent. Now, six thousand drachmas is, uh, according to scholars, is about twenty years worth of wages 6,000 talents or 6,000 drachmas to one talent but we're talking about 10,000 talents okay what he's getting at here is if the math works out it's somewhere in the neighborhood of six billion dollars and a trillion dollars that he owed this is just ridiculous debt it's not really calculable debt okay and like listen don't don't get sidetracked about how do you get that line of credit don't get sidetracked about any of that Focus on this is a ridiculous debt. It's impossible to repay this debt, okay? That's the point. This is impossible. And so the master does what he should do, which he threatened to throw him in debtor's prison. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him his debt. The master's threat understandably caused a emotional response, right? The servant really had nothing to offer. In his mind, he starts negotiating. <laughs> There's no negotiating here, okay? He's not going to be able to repay this back. He, he could live, you know, a hundred years, he's not going to be able to pay this back, okay? But he realizes that and he gets emotional, he gets scared. And so what he does from his heart, he starts speaking heart language to the master, Right? Out of of fear, He's, he's fearful of this. He's been threatened. So he asks for patience. He asks for more time. But really what he's asking is something more profound than just more time. Like he's speaking to the master about the condition of his heart. He speaks to his heart and says, yeah, give me more time. But really what he's getting at is he's saying, listen, I know you're a patient king. He gets to his person. And he's touching on these promises of him. Okay, He's saying, be patient with me. He gets to the heart. And God, the master here, responds from the heart. He he takes the bait, if you will, and he has pity and compassion on his servant. His heart's response is mercy. He desires to give him good things. He doesn't desire to give him bad things, and he doesn't give him what he deserves. He gives him something better from his heart. He gives him pity and compassion, and he wipes the slate clean. Friends, this is the good news of Matthew 18 right here. This is the gospel. Now, it's consistent with the gospel all over the scriptures. Romans six twenty three: For The wages of sin is, is death, but the free gift of God is, the, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, you and I have this ridiculous, incalculable debt with God, right? If we lived... 400 years, we wouldn't be able to pay off our sin debt with God. It's, it's a ridiculous notion. But like the servant, the God, God has given us something that we haven't earned. See, the wages of sin is death, but that's not what He's given us. He hasn't given us death. He hasn't given us what we've earned, our wage. God did something uh, immediate. He did, he did not throw us into eternal debtor's prison. He did something good to us. He gave us mercy. He gave us grace. You see, in the face of us running up so much debt, He gave us a free gift. Why did He do that? He did it because He is a patient, compassionate God. He has a a generous heart for you. you. You deserved eternal death, but He gave you eternal life. The Master has generously forgiven us. Amen? Amen? That's the good news. That's what He's given us. That's who we are. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay me what you owe. So here's this servant. owed an incalculable amount of money. Generously forgiven. Someone else comes along and owes him money as well. Scholars estimate that a hundred denarii, it's the equivalent of about $12,000 dollars Or maybe it's up to $20,000. Now, in my world, that's a lot of money, but it's not $6 billion, right? Like, listen, $20,000 isn't the point. $6 billion is the point. The context, the comparison is the point. The comparison's ridiculous, right? Verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Look at the parallel here. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt, the parallel is clear, right? Verses twenty-nine and thirty are—it's are, amazing the parallel from verses twenty-six and twenty-seven. In both instances, the servants fell down, pleaded. The first servant was was given patience. They both asked for patience, but the second servant was not given patience because the the second servant he was dealing with somebody who had this angry, hard, and heart, and as a result, he was thrown into debtor's prison. Now listen, at one level, don't you get it? $20,000? Probably not going to pay you back. Like you probably want to choke him out too, right? Like at some level you get it, right? But, But the comparison is the $6 billion. 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I have had mercy on you. The servant was distressed about the $20,000, but his fellow servants were distressed about the context of the $6 billion. This is shocking bitterness, right? Like this is... A shocking unwillingness to forgive a debt. And, and this is in the right categories here. The, the master puts it in the right category, verse 32. He calls him a wicked servant. If somebody's been forgiven $6 billion, but won't forgive $20,000, it's wickedness. This is an evil moment. This is evil. Not forgiving someone generously is evil when you've been forgiven so much. Verse 34 and 35. And in anger, his master, he's no longer patient, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The parable ends with the master losing patience, judging the bitter, unforgiving servant, and tossing him into jail. The point of the parable is pretty clear, isn't it? If... If God has forgiven you generously, you are also to forgive generously. If you've been forgiven a $6 billion debt, He's calling us to forgive a $20,000 debt. $20,000 debt hurts, right? That one hurts, but the context is the $6 billion. Friends, He's calling you to forgive generously because you've been forgiven generously. We're in this series on how to battle against bitterness. And my prayer that is that you see that forgiveness is how you battle. Remember, being bitter and unforgiving, it's like drinking poison hoping it kills your enemy. You see, lack of forgiveness, it ends up souring your own soul, not really hurting the one that hurts you. So whenever someone hurts you, you really are at this crossroads, right? When you face the brokenness of this world, you're at a crossroads of either becoming embittered and bitter or forgiving that person. That's the crossroads that you're at. And bitterness is this unmoved anger where it just sits on you, just leaking poison into your heart, souring your soul, and you can't move forward from it. But forgiveness, it's not holding the dead against someone anymore. It's admitting, okay, it was wrong, acknowledging that it hurts you and then uh, releasing it so that you can then move forward. Forgiveness is how you battle bitterness. Now, if you're like me, you might be asking, okay, how do I forgive? Well, let me close with four steps on, on how to forgive. Number one, ask God to change your heart. If you're struggling to forgive, ask God to change your heart. Jesus' parable, it's meant to give you this aha moment. Aha moments are all about changing our heart. Jesus always cuts to the heart and all of life kind of emanates out from the heart and from the soul. And as a result, the the point of the parable is meant to change your heart. It's meant to to soften you. When your heart is soft, then you then become controlled uh, by the gospel and the truths of the gospel and you're then able to forgive. So the gospel is, is that Jesus has forgiven you $6 billion. and, And when you just let that sit on your heart, and on your mind, that then softens you and enables you then to forgive someone else. Listen, the way that happens is, is that comes from a sermon like this. Letting it really marinate in your thoughts and in your soul. It, it comes from just humbly receiving counsel from a close Christian friend. It, it comes from studying the scripture on your own and, and just really trying to apply it. It comes from really from fervent prayer, asking God to change your soul. What wrong are you still angry about? And does your heart need to change about how you feel about it? Friend, ask God to change your heart. Number two, release the debt through prayer. Forgiveness is no longer holding someone's offense against them. You have to release the debt. And and one way to think of this step is categorical. Like, categorically forgive them. Meaning, Pray a prayer to God, something along the lines of, okay, God, He has sinned against me. It hurt me. It's made me angry. It was wrong. I've been holding it against Him. I know I have to forgive Him. Now I want to release this debt from Him. I want to forgive Him. Help me forgive. That's categorically releasing someone from the debt through prayer. But third, reconcile the relationship if possible. Categorically, release them from the debt, and then take that step of reconciling the relationship if possible. Listen, true forgiveness needs to move from categorical to relational. Like ideally, you should go to that offender and you should say something along the lines of, okay, friend, when you did that to me, I believe it was wrong and and I want you to know it really hurt me. And I've really struggled with being angry with you about it. In fact, I've been holding on to that anger and I want you to know that I forgive you And and I'm not holding that against you anymore. And I pray that you can forgive me for the anger that I have held for you. And and I would love for our friendship to be reconciled. Now, sometimes, sometimes when you do that, that person is going to receive it. And they're going to confess their sin. It's going to be that aha, Holy Spirit moment where they say, you know what? You're right. I shouldn't have done that. Will you forgive me for it? I need, your, I need to ask you for forgiveness. I also want to be reconciled. You end up being reconciled. God is glorified in these glorious ways and the relationship is closer. Sometimes that happens. That doesn't always happen, right? You see, we know that's not always the case. And just to be clear, in Jesus' parable here, that's really not what happens, right? That guy, in the end, he's judged accordingly. Further, there's relationships that you're not going to be able to reconcile. Okay? This is why this categorical forgiveness, relational forgiveness, I think it's so important. Because sometimes you're just not going to be able to reconcile the relationship. For example, maybe that person that you need to forgive, maybe they've already passed away. Listen, for some of you, the person you need to forgive, they're dangerous. Like, you don't need to be in the room again with them. Right? So, there's reasons for not going and, and having that conversation. And sometimes they just don't receive it, okay? Sometimes you have that conversation and they just don't receive it at all. It makes things worse, maybe. So maybe what you need to do is just write that letter, lay it out to them, seek their forgiveness, forgive them, and then be done with it and move on the rest, with the rest of your life. But that leads to the fourth step. Resolve to keep forgiving. Hear me here. You are a human being. You are imperfect. You are fallen, and what that means is, is you can go through this process of categorically forgiving someone, relationally forgiving someone, and then you're still going to remember the hurt. It's still going to wake you up in the middle of the night, and you're going to remember again that that something's going to happen, and it's going to draw you back to what they did. Maybe they're going to do it again. You're going to start putting walls up again. You're going to remember it all and it's going to draw you back. Here's the best advice that I can have for you. Resolve to keep forgiving. Typically what's going on there is it's uh, the hurt is hitting you at deeper levels. And really the counsel, all the counsel that I have for you in that is is just forgive them again. If you've Don't, don't get sidetracked with the noise of, well, maybe I didn't forgive them. I, don't mess with all that. Just say, I did forgive them. I forgave them categorically. I'm remembering again. It still hurts. It's hitting you at deeper levels maybe. Just forgive them again and roll over and try to go back to sleep. Just keep forgiving them. Resolve to keep forgiving them. And hear me, that costs something. Forgiveness costs something. And in and, and, and continuing to resolve to keep forgiving, that costs something. But I'm telling you, that's better than the bitter life. It's better than the bitter life. That costs you something remember. Uh, something more. So resolve to keep forgiving, even if you've already have forgiven. Uh, a lady named Rachel Den Hollander has kind of become a bit of a hero to me. Um, as a teenager, she was a she was a great gymnast. But she hurt her back. I mean, it's a, it's an intense sport, and she hurt her back. She lived up in Michigan, and so. Her parents were recommended to the, to the best doctor, physician who treated gymnasts there in the state of Michigan. He was a doctor at, at Michigan State University. He was the USA Gymnastics Physician, and they set up an appointment and went and saw Larry Nasser. During her treatment, Nasser sexually molested her. Now, even though people had reported Nasser before to authorities, Rachel really became the voice that really finally moved the needle forward. She uh, and this was years later after the abuse, but she, she took her uh, filing to, to the police. She reported it to the Michigan State Police. Uh, she found a detective there that really jumped on the case. She made a, a Title IX complaint, and then she went to the media, and she reported it to the Indianapolis Star newspaper. In the end, it came out that Nasser abused over 250 girls. Isn't that amazing. By God's grace, and I think this is a very positive thing, That group of girls, young ladies, eventually won over $300 million from USA Gymnastics and over $500 million from Michigan State University. Now, Rachel's work in that case is very important because it's taught us why it's so easy for some to abuse and then the victims to remain silent. It's taught us how victims can fight back, and it's taught us how adults can do a better job of protecting children. Now, her victim impact statement, and you can watch it online. You can read it on uh, online and you can watch it. I show this to my students that I teach. So I've watched this, I think probably 50 times. And every time I watch it, I tear up. It is one of the most powerful, beautiful things that I have ever heard. Now, she leads with calling the judge to give him the maximum sentence. And it's based upon a question that she asked. She asked the judge, how much is a little girl worth? Parents, I, I highly recommend you read her memoir, and it's that title, What is a Girl Worth? Her, her fight, again, has been heroic. But I want to tell you, Rachel Hollander is one of us. She's a Christian. She, she's in the group that was forgiven $6 billion. Like, she's one of us. And when I say she's one of us, she knows it. Her husband's a pastor. He did his doctorate. And I did my doctorate at Southern Seminary. These are reformed evangelical Baptist people. These are Christian people. She knows the gospel, and so in that moment, in that powerful moment, she does something so glorious. She forgives Larry Nasser in that moment. Abandoning all the legal jargon, she heartbreakingly tells the world all that he did. Then she outlines the total failure of the adult gatekeepers that should have been protecting from the police to to usa gymnastics to michigan state university but then she cites c.s lewis and she talks about the truth of the straight line and if we know that there's a straight line we know that there's moral truth in there we know that there's right and wrong and then she speaks about forgiveness and this is where her beautiful gospel presentation lays out. She tells Larry Nasser that God can forgive him. She tells him how to find forgiveness from God. And then she talks about how much pity she has for him. Saying that you went down this one path and you missed all these glorious things. I'm a mother now and I get to experience and see all these glorious things of these girls becoming young women and just the beauty of it and the glory of it. And you've missed all that. She pities him. She then explains the gospel as, quote, God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin that he did not commit. That's the gospel that she tells him. And then based upon the grace that she has received, Rachel Denhollander said, By his grace, I choose to love this way. Who do you need to forgive? Friend, if you've been born again by Jesus' grace, then you've been forgiven a ridiculous, incalculable debt. Amen? That forgiveness was accomplished at a cost. That debt was released by Jesus' atoning death. He has forgiven you generously. Amen? I know it's difficult. I know it will cost something. But I also know bitterness It's costing you something more. Bitterness poisons our souls. Forgiveness gives us life. It gives us health and happiness and hope. Amen? What brokenness has made you bitter? Generously receive the debt because God has generously released your debt. Let's pray. Father God, I hate this passage and I love it all the same. This passage is so terrifying. It's so beautiful. It's so hard and so easy. It's so profound. Thank you for your word. For those of us who've been born again, Father God, we thank you for the ridiculous debt that you've canceled. It cost you something. And Lord, we're going to spend eternity praising you for it. Lord, if there's someone in here that is just stuck in that anger. May your spirit help them forgive today. Lord, if there's someone in here and maybe they think they're a Christian, maybe they've thought they're a Christian and and just assume maybe they are, but maybe they identify with that servant more than they really want to admit. Lord, if someone in here maybe thinks they're converted, but they're really not, Their life is not marked by that forgiveness. Lord, may this be the day that they come to you. Lord, may we be a forgiving. It's in Jesus' name we pray.